Welcome to The Teacher's Story. I'm Jackie Scully. This is a podcast to elevate teacher voice. In this program, you will hear teachers sharing their journey into this profession and their ideas for education. This is about honest, vulnerable, inspiring storytelling. It's a time and a space for teachers to share their ideas for the future of education. Teachers are beautiful beings who give their heart and soul to their community. They're innovators. They're inspirational, not only to children, but to the people around them and they deserve to share their voice. So welcome to The Teacher's Story. Enjoy. Hi, welcome to The Teacher's Story. I'm Jackie Scully, and today we have Michael Strong. And I came across Michael Strong through a former guest on this show, Raheen Fatima, who is a young adult who took education into her own hands and found the Socratic experience. And Michael Strong is the founder of that school. And today we're going to learn more about his background in education and how he was inspired to start this school. So welcome, Michael. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, Jackie. So my first question for you is what inspired you to get into education? So it's a long story. I'll try to tell it relatively quickly. Um, when I was in high school, I had a class where the teacher just, um, we read and discussed books. So as a junior, we read Plato, Nietzsche, Buber, and we just talked about it. And I loved it. And for me, it was one of those experiences, you know, some movies, there, it starts in black and white, at some point it turns to color. It was that dramatic for me. Uh, I love thinking and talking about ideas. And so I there's a college in the United States, St. John's College campuses in Santa Fe and Annapolis, where all classes for four years are taught by means of Socratic dialogue. So four years of conversation, no lectures. Um, I ended up having good test scores, so I went to Harvard, but I hate being lectured at. So uh, I left Harvard to go to St. John's, and four years of that, I wanted to share this delight with intellectual dialogue. While I was in graduate school at the University of Chicago, I began going into inner city classrooms in Chicago through Mortimer Adler's Paideia Project and leading Socratic, Socratic seminars with kids. And it did, it felt like I was liberating prisoners. They were so eager mm -hmm. to talk so eager to think. Um, and that led to a career, basically, where I in, initially in Alaska, I was hired to be a full-time Socratic teacher trainer going into public schools and training teachers to lead Socratic seminars. We were on soft money, grant money. And so after the grant money ran out, some parents loved what we were doing and asked me to start a private school based on Socratic dialogue. So I became an accidental education entrepreneur. Um, from there, I joined a Montessori school in San Antonio, where uh, they asked me to create a Socratic Montessori high school, and I Socratized the pre-K through grade eight. I then created a school for highly gifted children in South Florida that was based on Socratic and very advanced math and science. Uh, then Montessori middle schools in the Palo Alto area, based on Socratic and Montessori. Uh, then a charter high school in Angel Fire, New Mexico, again, based on Paideia Socratic. Uh, I then met John Mackey, the founder and CEO of Whole Foods, and he created he and I created a nonprofit promoting entrepreneurial solutions to world problems. But then I got back into education uh, about a decade later, both Socratic and now more entrepreneurial and creative projects for students. Uh, that eventually became the high school model for the largest Montessori network in the U.S. And in 2020, when COVID hit, uh, everyone else was talking about how terrible online education was. Mm. Turns out dialogue works pretty well online. And so I started the Socratic experience with three students on my credit card in fall of 2020. 
Now we're about 160 students around the world, Pakistan, Taiwan, Eswatini, families from all around the world, Iraq, uh, Guatemala, Honduras, so all over the place. So it's been a delightful journey. Wow, that is so impressive. And thank you for a pretty um, you know, quick synopsis of so much that you have done in your time. Uh, before we get a little bit more into the School of the Socratic Experience, just for our listeners, I am well-versed in the Socratic Seminar. We use it in our history department. I also agree that during the pandemic in virtual teaching, the Socratic Seminar method and just discussion-based types of lessons really worked well. I actually connect it with my students. I teach upperclassmen, so I teach 11th and 12th grade, so it worked out pretty well to have these deeper conversations um, over virtual. And I just felt like it was a time where we connected more because there wasn't a lot of other distractions, right, in like the classroom and social and all of that. But can you explain to our listeners um, about the Socratic uh, method just a little bit? Sure. So the basic format, and sometimes I use, because some I, I actually like tracing it back to the historical Socrates, yeah. but sometimes I simply use intellectual dialogue. Adults who care about ideas, we spontaneously talk about ideas. Um, you know, I always choke that you know, first date with my wife, I was asking her questions throughout the date. And she said, you're giving me, me a headache. And so it wasn't auspicious, but now we're happily married and we talk about ideas all the time. And so there's, you know, some of us enjoy talking about ideas. In a lot of ways, that's what we want to introduce in the classroom, this delight in intellectuality that many adults have and many students don't yet have. Uh, so if the basic format at St. John's, and I've done a variation on that, is we read something together. Sometimes we read it in class. Sometimes it's a painting. Uh, but there's a text, even if the text is, say, a painting or a photograph or whatever. And then we, the guide, we call them guides rather than teachers, simply asks questions, open-ended, thought-provoking questions. Um, sometimes I do it without a text. I, I, in our elementary program, I have asked young children, how do you know if you've been manipulated? And they have all kinds of opinions on that. Or when is it okay to cause emotional pain? Uh, you know, all sorts of opinions on that. So we get them thinking and talking about ideas. Um, it's helpful to have uh, smaller numbers. Our cl classes are all 15 to 1. I've done it in public schools with 30 to 1. You have an inner circle and an outer circle. But you get much more intense energy if it's about 10 to 15 students. Uh, actually, too small, it's hard to get the energy. But yeah, desks in a circle, uh, some text in common to focus the conversation, ask a question, and then there are a variety of techniques for making sure the question flows and goes deeply. And you know, I've written a book on this, The Habit of Thought mm. from Socratic Seminars to Socratic Practice. So if any educators want to go deep with me, uh, you know, in some cases it's easy. I started training teachers to do this. Sometimes I just walk into a class, ask a question, most incredible conversation done. Or sometimes it's really difficult. There are some groups of students where, boy, it's hard. And it really mm -hmm. depends on classroom chemistry. I used to do you know, seven sections in a row. I'm the same person, use the same text. Third period was easy. Four period was so hard. And so part of becoming an experienced Socratic uh, discussion leader is expanding the range of groups with which if the practice is effective and developing a broader repertoire of techniques. Yeah, and I find that it is, you have a structure and like you said, the teacher's the guide and there is a flow, so there's a lesson, but it's meant to also be very organic too. And I was just having this conversation with a former colleague yesterday. Um, we had this little reunion because she retired in the pandemic. So never saw her after 2020. 
And we talked about the best lessons are when you have those like organic conversations and you dive in deep and you kind of go off of, well, this is what I had planned, but there's an interest here. And there's like this light, this spark, let's go there because why not? You know, not everything has to be so structured. And also, you know, you grade these conversations and there's rubrics with it, but sometimes it's just nice to have the conversation and have the discussion and not necessarily have the student ask, well, what am I going to get on this? Like, what are the point values for this type of question or this type of answer so that we're moving more in a place of real discovery? So when you're an adult, you're having conversations in these discussions about the world and issues and whatever you're passionate about. And there isn't like, well, what am I getting for this? Right. What's the intrinsic motivation with that? So uh, kind of like a off of that, um, and I don't know if this is something you incorporate at the Socratic experience. Is there like a grade or a rubric or you know something that's also tactile tied to this method, or is it purely just to encourage students to fully get into learning and asking questions for the sake of just learning about? You know, so topics? lots actually lots of deep and interesting questions in there. There you're getting right at. I would say the crux of the issue. Um, first, I would say just in public school, the whole standards movement, no child left behind in that orientation has made it more difficult to use Socratic seminars in public schools because it works best when one has a lot of freedom and flexibility. And the accountability movement has increasingly interpreted education. It's always been, you know, the model has often been uh, content transmission rather than intellectual discovery. But uh, public schools have gone heavy into the content transmission piece. Um, I would say there are a variety of ways to integrate the two, but I like to be a purist in the intellectual discovery and going at a very basic thing. Often when one is asking questions as a teacher in a classroom, one has a mental model of what the right answer is. And one asks a student, uh, what do you think about X? But really it's, oh yes, that's a good answer. Oh no, that's a bad answer. Uh, and I compare it to in poker, a tell. And I've been in students, you know, academically ambitious students that want to know what the right answer is. And they're very annoyed with me as a leader, a Socratic leader, because I don't know what answer he wants. Precisely. For me, getting kids to think independently, authentically about what they believe and why is the whole game. And so I'm, I'm very scrupulous about there is no right answer. There is reason and evidence. Uh, we expect them to use reason and evidence to understand the text. But going back to um, classroom, although I do have a rubric in the back of my book for evaluating the quality of the discussion, it's a self-evaluation rubric for students. And I explicitly do not grade the students on the quality of the discussion, because my personal opinion is, while we want them to understand the evaluation standards, I want them to self-evaluate and not have me evaluate. Mm -hmm. Conversely, in the conventional setting, I use written work entirely as a basis for grade. And I write a lot. Uh, I often say I love learning, I hate school. One of the reasons I hate school is I never understood the point of language arts classes. So I was a good student, straight A's, but it seemed like an arbitrary game. And part of what I realized is as an adult writer, writing is about 95% thinking. And mm -hmm. often I would just be presented with this random language arts assignment. What's the symbolism and blah, blah, blah. What? Okay, I'll make something up. Whereas when the students have an hour to think about something, then they're motivated to write. I'll give you a concrete example. Um, we have, uh, there are two essays from Yale on should we bring the woolly mammoths back from extinction or not? 
And we read both pro and con. And the students care about that. You know, some students, yes, we should. It'd be so cool to bring the woolly mammoths back. Other students, no way. That'd be a horrible ecological disaster. Whatever they believe, they argue it. And at the end, okay, you've just outlined an essay. You know, a lot of students hate essay writing, but basically, if you have a thesis you're defending, yeah, it's so cool to bring them back. And then reasons, because yay, A and B and C, you just outlined an essay. Mm -hmm. And so I see the key product coming from Socratic seminars as essay writing. And then even taking this to say, um, you know, AP, one of the schools I did was exceptionally successful on AP exams because, you know, AP history courses, people focus on the 800 page content coverage, but you can actually score a four or five on an AP history exam strictly by getting the top score on the essays. Even if you got all of the multiple choice wrong, nobody realizes that, but mm -hmm. it's harder. I think it's easier to cover content and our mental model is content coverage, mm -hmm. but getting students to become really great thinkers and writers and sophisticated. A lot of what I see is I want my students to be intellectually sophisticated. They understand the ins and outs of all sorts of arguments, great writing. I think one of the challenges of teaching great writing, you can teach topic sentences and you know, grammar and punctuation. You can teach all these things, but what's hard is to teach students to be intellectually sophisticated. Whereas mm. hours and hours in Socratic discussion gives them you know, that facility with different kinds of arguments, how to respond, how to put one's um, you know, ideas, how to frame one's ideas vis-a-vis -vis different audiences. So uh, yeah, I'm very pure on in the discussion itself, uh, no content coverage, but writing is where they demonstrate their knowledge, whatever it is. And increasingly, we push towards sophisticated essay writing as the goal. So I'll quit ranting, but makes sense? It makes a lot of sense. And as I was thinking about that, I always think about process versus product. And I always, I like to push process in the classroom. And so like, even when I teach about uh, research and research writing, we write a big research paper term paper for the 11th grade world history class that I teach. It's more about the process than the final product. The final product is the paper, but we do a lot of what you're talking about where it's discussion-based and we're sharing and we're we're analyzing the different sources that they're finding. And we're kind of arguing about like, well, why would this source be good to use versus this one? And how would you use it? And discussing and building up to that point so that they have more of that critical thought that they then could put into their paper. So the Socratic method is really about the process and it's about gaining that kind of experience and building that thinking muscle so that when they get to creating the product the paper the essay whatever that may be it could be a presentation they have that practice they have that experience to then really make that eloquent and you know a great piece of work so i like this idea of not necessarily grading the actual discussion and using that and explaining that to the students i think explaining process to mm -hmm. the students and the value of process and the value of, again, using that to think about critical thinking as a muscle um, that will then help you in that product that you're creating is really valuable for them to understand because everything that I still see, and I'm in an independent school, is about product, is about what is the grade, what do I need to do to be like, you know, getting that A you know, on the report card. And I, I want to kind of continue that conversation of, but what are we really doing here? Right? Like, what are you really doing as a student? Like, what's the point? The point isn't just the A, or it's not just like an excellent paper or presentation, but what led you to that point? And like, how can you then use that in your day-to-day -day life 
as a person, not just a student, you know, because you're really a student your whole entire life. Like I tell them, like, not just because I'm a teacher, but in my day-to-day life, like I'm constantly learning and expanding the way I have different perspective and the way I can engage in different conversations and with people who have different opinions than me. Cause I think that's a really important aspect of schools right now is that we need to work on civil discourse <laughs> Huge. Huge. as a country, I mean, as a world, but we can look at just America. We are not good at it. <laughs> yeah. We are not good at it as adults. And I think the Socratic method could also help with that aspect of civil discourse. So I do really um, appreciate what you're doing and your explanation of that and getting into your school. So you you mentioned how this kind of came out of the pandemic time. And I often talk about that on this show. And so if you want to talk a little bit about the birth of the Socratic Experience School and some of the uh, beginning work you were doing and kind of like where it's going now, that would be great. Sure. I mean, actually, before getting into that, I want to just touch on something else when you're talking about um, the students just went to grade. And earlier before we got on, you were talking about many students are motivated by college admissions. Um, I see many good writing rubrics include, say, voice. And a lot of one of the reasons a lot of student writing is flat is it has no voice. There's no personality. I think especially in the age of GPT, uh, voiceless mm. writing is dead. Whereas college admissions committees love, you know, love to have interesting students. So I often explain to students part of the value. If you're just asking how to get a grade and passively and try to please the, please the teacher, you're already obsolete. That would be the harsh way of talking about it. Whereas develop, they're, or they're actually a consulting firm that consults with juniors and seniors on how to become interesting for their college essays. Mm. Like mm. instead of being paying somebody to be, how to be interesting, develop your own voice, develop your own individuality, develop who you are and express that in your writing. Mm. And that's actually very powerful for college admissions. So uh, I actually see where mm. it's been, uh, I, I perceive you your appreciation for this kind of pedagogy and I actually connect it to the elite college admissions thing, um, just, just to kind of give that riff. Um, but yeah, I, I would say our actual, I describe our curriculum at the Socratic experience as the conscious development of personal identity. Mm. Um, you know, Socrates, know thyself, mm. which sounds obscure. Everybody thinks, oh, what's your history curriculum, your language arts curriculum, your math, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, we do have those subjects, but for me, much more fundamentalists. Who are you? What do you stand for and why? We use the purpose or ikigai diagram. What do you love? What are you good at? What will the world pay for? And what does the world need? And every day, we have a combination. We have a two-hour block that combines a personal growth session where we talk about how to become a better version of yourself. How do you learn from your mistakes? How do you set goals? How do you deal with anger? What do you do if you're not getting along with your friends? all sorts of fundamental personal growth topics, and then the Socratic dialogues on global texts from around the world. But we get into the you know Confucianism and Taoism and Islam and Christianity, and we want kids to think and talk about all sorts of big philosophical worldviews. Um, and then in our STEM program, there's a lot of problem solving. We want them, we have the kind of standard linear math curriculum, algebra one, geometry, algebra two, but we also have a more open-ended problem solving curriculum where we want them to think, talk, and argue about how to solve problems. Um, then we have a range of digital uh, media electives. So, you know, obviously the digital world is intense. So our school schedule is Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, core subjects, 
then Wednesdays are electives, including things like software development, graphic design, uh, audio engineering, podcasting, video production. And the idea is that we want all of our students to do an entrepreneurial or creative project by the time they graduate based on their personal passions. Um, and some students you know, write, some produce videos, some do software. Uh, most of them are active online, but we want to take that online energy and make them agents, active agents instead of passive consumers. Uh, and they don't have to do a project online, but that's just you know a virtual school, a global school. And so a lot of them are involved in projects like that. Uh, but the other thing is they can actually do you know adult level work. Raheen is exceptional in that mm -hmm. she's working on creating a company to employ Pakistani women as uh, web developers. And she is kind of the international uh, business development person who's bringing in real jobs for Pakistani women who otherwise might not have such great lives. And so we actually combine yeah. kind of change in the world with uh, this digital work while developing intellectual sophistication. Um, the other piece we have is we have every student is mentored one-on-one -on -one for 30 minutes um, and the mentor helps them kind of have a personal vision for where they want to go with their life, helps them obviously with academics and so forth. But the big thing is we want them to own their own education, own their own life and go back to this individuality. If they are uh, an active thinking person with their own purpose in life, then they will be more happy. They will be more successful. And in many cases, even the college admissions committee um, will appreciate, wow, this is an interesting person. We want to be part of our community. Yeah, and I think it gets back to student choice and agency. I think, and I talk about this a lot in this show, and it's something that I get quite frustrated with in the traditional school system. And I think there doesn't need to be this amount of courses, this amount of credits, check this box, you need this to get into college because you're just explaining now your program and you have students that are going to go and apply to college and universities around the world. So you don't, and there's homeschool students who do the same thing. So it doesn't need to be so rigid. And I just wish that the traditional school system could see that. Like there's all these alternative methods and these students are doing very well and getting into college and university. So if that's still the standard of where parents and people want to see their student going off to higher education, you can do it in many different ways. So why can't we infuse that within the traditional school system? Because I see students very um, apathetic and mm -hmm. kind of burnt out because their schedules are overfilled and they're overfilled with classes and areas that they're not interested in. And, you know, maybe by their junior, senior year, they have a little bit more choice, but then by that time, they're so, their mindset is so about what do I need to do to check boxes to get into this program? They're not thinking about self-exploration and passion. They're only thinking about working the system. Mm -hmm. Like we're training them to work the system and then they go out into the world and they're, that's like their mindset is like strategy over insight about who they are and then you wonder why we see a lot of students struggling with mental health and struggling with identity because we're not fostering that in the school system where they're spending most of their time and if they have very busy parents many parents are working a lot their influence is in the school and I think we need to be fostering 
self-exploration. I think meeting with a mentor is wonderful. I'm an advisor in my school, but not all schools have that type of program. And being able to have guidance, but you are there as a student kind of picking and choosing what you want to dive into. And I like the schedule of you have these core kind of classes, but in the middle of the week on a Wednesday, it's funny, I've talked about this on the show too, but having a day where it's kind of more open and you can have like your electives, or maybe you have time to work on these passion projects or meet with your mentor or go out there outside the class, whether it's online or if you're in a traditional school building and go out and you're working in the community and doing maybe some of the work like Raheen's doing with going and scouting out these women, these web developers to help them, you know, you know, bring them into the job market. And that could be part of that school week experience is doing that field work. Mm -hmm. So to me, it makes complete sense. Um, How do we, you know, I know you're, you're like want to promote your schools. So you're like, I don't need to infuse this in the traditional school system. But how do you do you see a place that most of the schools, and I'm just going to focus on America, but there's a lot of you know traditional school systems throughout the world, how we can infuse these programs and ideas within the the larger school system? Oh, that's a good question. A couple of things. First, uh, I don't know. You've probably heard of the mastery transcript. Is your school part of the mastery transcript? No, it's not. Okay, well, that, that's uh, I, I want to give credit to the um, you know elite private schools who are pushing that uh, because you know it is focused on mastery rather than seat time, and I think um, it really is about mastery. And so, kind of going back to what we do and uh, some of the mm-hmm. issues of time and mental health, um, we have way less classes. Our kids are much less scheduled than most schools. Um, our our core classes are just four hours a day. And so they have a lot more time. There is also a separate, you know, the linear math program I mentioned, but that's self-paced and individualized. When we have math lab, they can drop by half an hour, an hour or whatever, but um, they can do it at their own pace. And we've got some students who are doing a year of math per year, but other students, two years, three years, four years of math year. If they're motivated in a self-paced tutored math program, they can do a lot of math quickly. If If math is not their thing, Um, everything about what we do is personalized, so they can do way less math. And again, part of this is one size fits all. So the student who wants to go to MIT, yes, they need to be doing a ton of math, but they can do it at their own pace. And we also have them do it it over the summer and it's all voluntary. The students on the other hand, who are not into math, um, I'm very big on design schools. So a lot of our um, creatives go to film school, design school, art school, you know, that kind of thing. And so they're not even playing the college game. A lot of our mm. entrepreneurial students are going right into the startup world. And so some of this, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, even going back to the college admissions piece. And I'm trying to change the mindset, going back to your question of how you change it, is people need to change the mindset. Um, yeah. There's a wonderful book called How to Be a, a High School Superstar by a man named Cal Newport, kind of an expert in learning. And he talks about how to get into Stanford with bees. And you think, oh, no, I have bees. My life is over, you know. You know, there are students, I'm sure you have that attitude and parents have that attitude. He points out, and this is similar to our college admission strategy, doing a really impressive project is actually more important than grades and test scores. Um, You know, I think in that example, he has an example where a student started a nonprofit in Africa and, you know, helped thousands of people. And a high school student who does that, uh, it's not so important, your grades. uh, When I went to Harvard, the kid with the lowest SAT scores in my class had been elected mayor of a small town in Michigan. 
if you can get yourself elected mayor of a town at 18, uh, they don't care so much about your test scores. Different example, wow. <laughs> I had a friend who was uh, on the Harvard uh, admissions committee and they saw a student who dropped out of high school and gone to a Buddhist monastery for a year and came back and got into Harvard. And one way to think about that is I've been on scholarship committees for national scholarships. On a Saturday morning, you're reading 500 applications, GPA, test scores, student council, varsity sports, orchestra, volunteer work, yada, yada, yada. And then, oh, the kid who dropped out and went to a Buddhist monastery, that's mm -hmm. the one you remember after 500 applications. Mm -hmm. So this whole thing of being distinctive and individual is actually more important. You know, there, there are places, University of California system is so huge. It is, you know, they've got hundreds of thousands of applicants. It's grades and test scores. You know, it's, it's just a machine. But for mm -hmm. private universities, it's highly personalized and they want more interesting people. And I'm sure I know lots of professors who complain, you know, just like you said, the professors at universities don't want students who are of passive, you know, you know, work in the system. Uh, almost everybody in education does not like that kind of students. And yet we are training students to be that kind of students. Hello. So, true. so we know. need kind of courageous leaders at the high school level, at the university level, at the admissions committees level. You know, we're kind of stuck in this uh, unhealthy equilibrium that isn't what anyone really wants. Or, you know, maybe there are a few people who want it, but I think there are a lot of opportunities for uh, people to say, no, we're going to encourage the passion, the interest, the amazing achievement. And the way I think about it is as long as university, as long as a student has an adequate, has proven adequate academic ability, that's where uh, you know, we actually do uh, encourage SAT performance for college bound students. And we have a whole system for that and AP or college courses. But if they take three or four AP courses, uh, they don't need 15 or 20. <laughs> You know, if they get fives, fours or fives on four AP courses, Harvard knows they're capable. If they do something really amazing that's based on their personal interests, that helps them stand out. So I'm encouraging more people to think this way. The other thing is uh, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of our families are either entrepreneurs or creative professionals because people out there who just go out and make things happen, they know jumping through hoops is not the way of the future. And mm -hmm. so I think we just need to encourage more people to realize um, authentic value creation is the win in the 21st century economy in a big way. Jumping through hoops is not. And schools and students and families who are stuck in the jumping through hoops model are ultimately going to be at a disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis the authentic value creation model. So that's a big abstract, but that's kind of my high-level preachy version. Yeah, I'm thinking as you were talking, because I was reading an article this morning about um, AI and the recent, um, I don't know his name off the top of my head, but that kind of was the godfather of the beginning of AI who just loved Google and quite scary. Um, but the, the biggest threat right now, because it's moving so quickly, is people losing their jobs. You know, mm -hmm. so what AI will be able to do you know, for a lot of those jobs, which are like just jobs jumping through hoops and just get it done and be a worker bee, AI is going to take that over eventually. And so um, I think it's important that we foster that you are a unique in independent individual and what are your unique talents and how do you stand out and provide something very different to the world and not just necessarily checking the boxes to get this degree 
to fall into this job that might be taken from you from AI or whatever else in the future. So the entrepreneurial route, I think is really important. And with that, you need space and time. So I think what the traditional school system needs to eventually try to do, and maybe it happens little by little, is scaling back the school day from having like eight subjects, eight periods in a day of all of these courses you have to take and making some of this space for students to meet with a mentor, to work on an entrepreneurial project or an activism project, whatever that may be, and have some field time, you know, have some time, you know, in the high school level. And that's, you know, where I've been most of my career, they're, they don't need to be supervised all day long. So I feel right. like the old school system was like, well, my kid needs to be somewhere. It needs to be supervised, like it's childcare. And by the time, I mean, honestly, by the time they're like 14 years old, they they don't need to be. If we give them some freedom and we give them, you know, some structure with that freedom, they're going to do okay. And they're probably going to do better than feeling like they're just being watched and supervised and dictated all day long. That's when they kind of want to be a little bit more rebellious and maybe do things that aren't so great because there's so much in a box. And these these kids today, this generation, they know it and they see it and they're starting to fight against it. Just yeah. like we see, you know, like rebelling against the systems in different ways. Like students are starting to really kind of like buck the system a little bit because they know that this isn't working and this is not the way of the future. And I don't want to be in this anymore. And so you do see a lot of parents, families pulling students out of the traditional method and going to some of these other schools like your school or homeschooling. And you see a lot of teachers also leaving the profession. So um, there has to be a change. Like it's, yeah. it has to happen. And I think it has to happen within the next like few years, not like, oh, a decade or two down the road. And it doesn't have to be a whole upheaval of the whole system. Um, but you, you do need to start to see like these like schedule changes and mind shift changes of like, how are we actually doing school? So I think even just promoting what you're doing at the Socratic experience, having this conversation, one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast was to share these ideas and really to inspire um, people within the education system to do things a little differently. But big time. And I didn't get to the mental health thing. Everything you say is yeah. true, and I would multiply it 10 times. Uh, but just, and the, the irrelevance of school for most kids, at the nation as a whole, United States as a whole, Yale did a study a couple of years ago, 75% of high school students are unhappy at school. Um, 75%. Mm -hmm. Gallup for decades has been charting what they call the engagement cliff. In elementary school, about 60% of students are engaged. By high school, only about one in three students is engaged in learning. You know, the vast majority of students are tuned out and unhappy. Yeah. Another statistic, and this is horrifying, um, suicide in high school is related to the academic year. And teenagers commit suicide at about double the rate on Mondays in, during certain mm -hmm. school months as compared to July. We know that this pattern is associated with school because once they leave school, that seasonal pattern vanishes. Um, something very simple, uh, and you know, of course, I, I give a lot of credit to Jane Twinge and Jonathan Haidt for calling attention to the adolescent mental health crisis. And yes, I completely agree with them that social media has exacerbated it. But I think what nobody's paying attention are the underlying school issues, you know, which some of which I've mentioned, but one other piece 
simply if a student feels, feels cared about at school, they are half as likely to attempt suicide. And this is not rocket science for right. students to feel cared about. Um, you know, the surveys on school connectedness are, does somebody at school care about you? Um, and I'm, you know, again, I'm sure in a Quaker school, they all feel cared about. But uh, these mental health issues are becoming urgent. The 21st century economy, I agree, is everything you say there. Uh, mm -hmm. People who can't think for themselves are going to become obsolete very rapidly. And we mm -hmm. do urgently need to shift the system. Now, I would encourage people to form coalitions. Now, I don't think the system as a system is going to change. But there are educators who get this. There are parents who get this. You know, there are you know, entrepreneurs. There are people in the community who get this. So I see people creating coalitions around a different model of education. And, you know, one by one, can we push this institution in this direction or do we start new institutions? Then just one other piece, um, insofar as our model is, our biggest goal is for students to own their own education and own their own life. It makes teaching so much more joyful. Uh, I get people, every day I have people inbound asking me if they can teach here when we know never advertise for teachers because I think most teachers know that the old system is not working. Yeah. And so I think this is really gonna be a big win for teachers and students. And we just have to get out of this old model uh, willy nilly, you know, in a thousand different ways. Again, the, the system's not gonna change, but a right. thousand different ways we need to push in this direction. Yeah, and I think that's a great point that a whole system just doesn't change and it's not gonna change with uh, policymakers <laughs> and with the government, but it's about individual people little by little gathering in community and saying, this doesn't work anymore and we're gonna do something different. And then that challenges the system. And over time, you could see these newer types of you know schools and the education system will eventually change and i see that happening so i applaud what you're doing at the socratic experience um just being able to talk with raheen as one of the students there um and that you mentor she is phenomenal i mean she is light years ahead of so many young adults and the fact that she kind of just took education into her own hands and came to your school and is flourishing. Um, it's just that right there is an example of, you know, what you're doing. And so I applaud you and thank you for coming on and sharing more about your work. I'm delighted to be here, Jackie. And yeah, if there's anything I can do to support you or people in your audience, uh, I'm happy to do so. Again, my book, The Habit of Thought, uh, is it was designed for to help teachers in classrooms. So that's concretely. Actually, I also have a YouTube channel called Socratic mm -hmm. Michael Strong, where the daughter of a friend, uh, I began working with her when she was four years old and she is now 10. So if people want to see the longitudinal development of a four-year-old becoming mm -hmm. at 10, at 10, she is taking a college Python course and mostly learning it on her own. We've got a tutor helping her some and she's working with yeah. another student. But yeah, well, I, the other thing is this is a long-term play. You know, you can measure content coverage. Uh, it's easier to quantify. I think the whole content coverage piece comes from it's easier for school administrators and systems to measure. But I see this long-term intellectual development as more important and harder to measure. And we need people who believe in this to, to do the long game with us. Absolutely. I will uh, share all of your information in the show notes. So anyone who's interested to learn more about Michael Strong, the Socratic experience, look at your book or YouTube channel, that will be um, links in the show notes. So thank you, Michael, for 
coming on the show. And this has just been a great joy to have this conversation. Very, very, um, I'm very aligned with what you're doing and what you're talking about today. Thank you, Jackie. Great to talk with you. Okay. Have a great day. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Teacher's Story. If you like this story, please subscribe and leave a review. You can also follow this podcast on YouTube and subscribe and leave a comment. All reviews help this podcast keep going and elevating teacher voices.